I almost ignored playing hockey now, or just like fully embodying this role of the enforcer, which outside of being physically demanding is extremely mentally demanding because you're in this state of fight or flight, right? And But you're kind of in the middle of it because you can't ignore the danger and say, I'm just not going to fight, so I'm going to take the day off. And you don't know when the fight's going to happen, so you're in a constant state of anxiety. Even the fight's over, you're worrying about the next one. So the easiest way I can describe it, it was mentally and spiritually draining. Thanks for checking out Guys Talking Yoga. So this podcast is focused on getting more men into yoga by raising awareness of its many benefits through conversations with other guys. I'm your host, Derek Vandewalker, and today's guest is Riley Cote. You know, like a lot of young guys in Canada, he grew up playing pond hockey with the dream of being in the NHL. When he was 16 years old, Riley joined the Western Junior Hockey League and entered a world of accountability and self-policing in a game that didn't quite feel as natural as the one he grew up on the ponds of Canada playing. In this conversation, Riley shares how he reached a point in his career where his role as the enforcer for the Philadelphia Flyers started taking a toll on his health mentally, physically, and spiritually. And it was yoga that really helped him start to see, know, and feel the things that he wasn't paying attention to. And it allowed him to change his life and change his path. Hey, if you like this conversation and enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and also follow us on Instagram at GTY Podcast. That's GTY Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening. So Riley Cote, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. So you got your hands on a lot of different things, cannabis and hemp and where things are going with psychedelics in this country. But right now, our listeners are more focused in hearing your story with yoga. So take us back to who Riley was before he got into yoga and what brought you there. Yeah, I've lived an interesting life. So my previous life, I was a professional hockey player. And within that context of hockey player, I was actually a hockey fighter. If you can imagine that actually existed. The role of the enforcer, I had been introduced to yoga. I want to say my second last year in 2009, and um, it was humbling to say the least, but I still f- didn't fully understand what I just experienced. At that moment, I didn't think that yoga had a place for my training. Again, my mindset at the time was heavy weights, you know, lifting a lot, looking a certain size or being a certain size to fight. And so it wasn't until I retired two years later, 2010, that I embarked on this quest of healing and naturally yoga landed up being that substitute for the heavy lifting of that really exhausting stressful exercise that I had been participating in and it was really the mindset of just transitioning from that world to this world thinking that yoga was just physical exercise so that was you know the naive thinking that I had but Nonetheless, that was my introduction to yoga. But I look back on, you know, the what ifs. If I had maybe bought into this earlier, maybe there was a couple extra years on my playing career, you know, based on prevention of injury and mindset, the mind, the spirit, the whole bit, understanding of myself. But shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know, I wasn't smart enough at the time to recognize that, you know, the world has an interesting way of kind of pushing you on your path. So here we are. Yeah, well, you were smart enough to get into it when you did. I'll say that. Yeah, thank God. I'd, I'd probably feel like I'm 60 right now had I not. So you hung up the skates in 2010. You said you got exposed to it somewhere around 2009. Do you remember what was the moment that somebody brought yoga as an idea to you to check out? 
Yeah, I, I remember it vividly. Honestly, it was a, it was a buddy of mine who was a goalie coach in South Jersey where I lived, where I was playing with the Flyers. We had practice rinks in, in New Jersey, and goalies are you know a different breed to say the least. They're more about flexibility, right, and and the whole bit. So he's like, Riles, you know, I do yoga twice or three times a week. He's like, why don't you come with me one one morning? And I put it off for a while, and it was Bikram, and I remember going the one day and. <laughs> being completely exhausted after humbled laying on the mat i think i spent half of it in child's pose and all i could think was going through my mind is like what did i sign up for what is this and why am i so shitty at this you know having that real egocentric view on it like I, it was competition of some sort i remember having to leave there and go to the skate zone where we practiced it was in the middle of the summer that i kind of bought into this invite and I was so exhausted, you know, I drenched myself and it was dehydrated the whole bit. But it was that introduction that kind of caught me off guard and introduced me to this world. But it was very superficial understanding of what I actually experienced because in my mind, I was just exercise. I didn't understand the spiritual component and the mindfulness component of it. So it took me a couple of years from that introduction to actually embark back into it. So let's go back. So when this goalie coach was, was mentioning this to you, was he just sort of like talking to really anyone who was interested in, hey, you should check out yoga? Or did he see something in you that you needed and or thought you would benefit from? Well, you probably saw something in me that I could benefit from for sure. I don't think he communicated it to me exactly that way. It was more just like a soft introduction, like I'm doing this and I respected this guy and I knew that there was something going on with the yoga practice that was certainly helping him. You know, I was just connected the dots to just specifically flexibility, right? Being a goalie and being more limber and, and mobile and the whole bit. But looking back, and I never even thought about this until you asked this question, he probably saw me and said, maybe this guy could really use this. But again, my naive thinking, that meathead mentality, I guess I wasn't ready for the information yet unfortunately. So I didn't really connect the seed that was planted. You said you put it off a few times. Do you remember maybe why you were putting it off? Probably just the, the fear of the unknown. Again, going back to the ego, I think I just thought I knew better as far as what I needed to be a professional athlete. And it was ignorance, right? I mean, I didn't understand that enough to think how it was going to help me. So it was skewed delusional thinking. But I think a couple of the excuses in my mind were just like, this is not what I need right now. I need to be lifting. Had I had a better understanding, it would have completely changed my perspective on myself. But just the functional movement of hockey or any specific sport for that matter, just being a better mover, better breather, more concentrated athlete, all those good things that I discovered later on. But yeah, now I find myself in this position when I'm introducing people to yoga is like, I just know that I can help everybody. So when I'm introducing it to somebody, it's just like, here's this opportunity to change a little bit of everything about your behaviors and your lifestyle and your exercise regimen. But you're going to have to practice for some time to kind of see it as it is. So I can't say exactly what he thought, but certainly my mindset going back to why I was making excuses was just because it was fear of the unknown. You know what I mean? It was something that I had stigmatized in my mind thinking of yoga. You know, I think a lot of people do this still is they think of yoga and they have this boxed in version and perspective of what it is. Over time, that was certainly changed. Well, I can relate to it because when I got into yoga and I was introduced to Bikram back in the fall of 2000. Somebody was like, do you want to come to the yoga class after work? Because it was a bunch of sales colleagues going. 
And I remember thinking like, I don't even know what to even imagine what yoga is because I didn't even have the stereotypical yoga images that some have now because it was still sort of relatively unknown. And all I was told was like, eat a light lunch and drink lots of water before the Bikram class. And I was like, okay. And I too totally felt like it kicked my ass. And then when you said about spending half the class in child's pose, you literally are like, I got to lie down because my heart rate is pounding. I'm sweating like a beast. I'm so lightheaded. And I too recall those moments where you're just like, I can't believe people do this in this room for 90 minutes. And eventually after I got my bearings and got totally hydrated three days later, I came back too. So after that first experience, do you remember how quickly you went back? Because that was in 09. You said like a year or two later, you got back into it. And the early days when you were kind of testing the waters, were you going every once in a while? Did you just stick with Bikram? So the first time I've been introduced to it, it was while I was still playing. And I never went back until after I was retired. So it was actually kind of part of like the formula of me changing my daily behaviors. And, you know, there was obviously a lot of stuff going on in my personal life and in you know, my physical body. I was 215, you know, I'm 185 pounds now, you know, so I was, I was heavier and I was just the transition of thinking, I guess. But my mindset going into it was, again, just like substituting exercise for exercise. That was really why I got into it. It was just to kind of like, just like try and feel better. You know what I mean? I was stiff. I started to recognize like how egocentric and mindless my workouts were, you know, just around physical body and, you know, being a certain size to fight and all this interesting thought process behind. But I really think it was that summer where I got an unlimited package actually at Johnny Gillespie's Empowered Yoga in, in Newark. And I just loved the stationery. So I never went back to Bikram. And what I'll say about Bikram, I remember like that first experience was like, you once you're in the room, you don't leave the room. And I was like, oh, that's kind of scary. Like, what if people like really feel faint or whatever? And then I landed up being one of those guys. I just like, basically, I couldn't do the half the posture because I was so disorganized in my movements, in my small twitch muscles and the balance that I thought I had was really not up to par. And a lot of these things are probably working against me mentally that were draining me physically. And but uh, I just like, for whatever reason, connected with it. Maybe it was my mindset, you know what I mean? You know, I was no longer playing, I was no longer fighting. It had to have been just the mindset, but I just like, I remember that first one laying in Shavasana and, and thinking, wow, I really like that. I really love the way it made me feel and it kind of covered all the aspects of movement and that I wanted to do it again. But it had to have been where I was at in my life. and. And my thinking for sure definitely changed perspective. But I just remember that feeling was like completely different than that first one. It wasn't like, wow, I hated this and I couldn't wait for it to be over. I remember like there was times in that you know unlimited monthly membership of like me going twice a day. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just yeah. like I just something sacred about going in the heat and and moving with breath and whether I was identifying with it that deeply at the time, I'm not sure. But there was something very sacred that I, I attached to. So that was kind of like told me. So let me jump in here and say, it doesn't sound like it was a coincidence that you got into yoga as your hockey career was, was wrapping up. And anyone playing pro sports is going to take a lot of hits to the body and the head and the soul just because it's the total grind. You also had the uh, distinction of being the enforcer for the, the Flyers. If you could, tell us a little bit about leaving that role as a hockey player, as an enforcer, 
where you're basically putting the Dharma through your knuckles into people's faces as opposed to actually living your Dharma. You know, tell us a little bit about letting go of that sense of yourself. And as I think you said, I grew up in Canada playing hockey. I had my dream job and I just wasn't happy. Yeah, it's pretty deep. You're going back to the dream, the childhood dream of playing the NHL, right? I mean, I think every Canadian hockey player has that. And hockey is an interesting sport, right? It's uh, it's a creative sport. There, you know, there's functionality, there's mobility, there's speed, there's strength, there's the fear and accountability as you get older, right? I mean, when you're actually able to hit and, and fight and the whole bit. But growing up, I loved just playing hockey, right? It was creative. It was fun. It could score goals, especially on the pond. You can kind of be your own person. Obviously, as you work your way up, there's more structure around coaching and philosophy and team systems. And then eventually I landed up moving away from home at 16 and and playing the Western Hockey League. And the Western Hockey League is a junior hockey league that has fighting. And I was introduced to the world of accountability and self-policing in the game and still wasn't totally natural to me. It was just like, what happened to this, like playing hockey and having fun, right? So it's more and more of a job and more stress, more demanding, more expectations. It was never drafted to the NHL. So that kind of left me wondering, like, well, am I I that bad of a hockey player? And I'm seeing some of these guys that were drafted that I thought I was better than and looking at guys getting called up to the NHL and seeing guys with a lot of goals and then a lot of penalty minutes. So I kind of figured out the couple different lanes that you kind of had to fall into to find your way. And not saying that there was absolutely those only two lanes, but not being drafted, I realized that wow, I'm like, I got to really start getting noticed a little bit more. And, you know, for me, uh, I was a competitive guy. I was a somewhat physical guy in in junior hockey. My first year at 16, I'd fought in 10 times, which is not a ton, but it's still, you know, 10 fights. I mean, not being a fighter is significant. And I realized I was competitive enough to at least try to embrace this role and try to make it with this extra tool in my toolbox, if you will. I decided mentally to take on this role. I turned pro when I was 20. I had the option to go back to junior for one more year and play my overage year in Prince Albert in the Western Hockey League. But I decided to turn pro at 20 and take on this role. Well, you know, talk about embodying something. Well, just the way I'm wired, it was just like, okay, well, Riley, you're going to be taking on this role of being a fighter. So, you know, me naturally just being like, I'm all in. So I'm going to fight the biggest guy, the guy's most penalty minutes every single day, every single game. I'm going to approach this with that mentality, which I did. I was always a top three guy as far as fighting majors would go. And that was kind of like my new standard or measuring stick of a season was how many fights and fighting the toughest guys. So it was almost to a fault. It was almost like, okay, I almost ignored playing hockey now. Or I was just like fully embodying this role of the enforcer, which... Outside of being physically demanding is extremely mentally demanding because you're in this state of fight or flight, right? And But you're kind of in the middle of it because you can't ignore the danger and say, I'm just not going to fight tonight. I'm going to take the day off. And you don't know when the fight's going to happen. So you're in a constant state of anxiety. Even the fight's over, you're worrying about the next one. So the easiest way I can describe it, it was mentally and spiritually draining. In that first maybe year or two, I'm doing something new. There's these new challenges. You know, there's something kind of fun about it. You're young and you're full of piss and vinegar and you're trying to make a name for yourself, trying to work your way up. But eventually it took its toll. You know, I worked out of the Central Hockey League, you know, the East Coast Hockey League, American Hockey League, and eventually found my way to the NHL, essentially doing the exact same job. You know, the, the paychecks were just better every league I moved up. But the mental stress, the spiritual confusion, if you will, it just kept compounding and compounding. 
I just wasn't really sure what the hell I was doing. And then like to your question, I landed up finding my way and living my childhood dream. It wasn't to be a fighter in the NHL, it was to make the NHL. That was my dream. I didn't necessarily have a roadmap to how I was going to do it. I had to figure that out and, and, and I did. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I retired at 28, 2010. I had another year in my contract, one-way contract with the Flyers. And I was just spiritually exhausted. I wasn't fulfilled. I had some substance abuse issues, whether it was from the, the spiritual confusion or just the lack of fulfillment, whatever it lands up being. I liked the party, you know, even before I was a fighter, party was fun. You know, it was, it was part of the lifestyle. It's part of what the ego wants. But eventually you hear the, the phrase of like gut feeling or listening to your heart, whatever it lands up being. It's like, <laughs> I had to start listening to something that wasn't what I traditionally listened to of just like thinking that I needed to keep going about my business like this and, and being a hockey player and a fighter. So I had to make a hard decision. So just to kind of, for those who are listening, I think everyone kind of sees hockey fights as spur of the moment, but it's an actual role on a pro team. Could you just describe a little bit what is the purpose of the role of having an enforcer on the team? Sure. Well, the role doesn't really exist anymore. They're still fighting in hockey, but the actual role of the enforcer or the fighter is is pretty much diminished. But the, the role was to, well, A, protect your teammates. Right? There was an element of accountability and self-policing. So your star player had that extra confidence to know that he was going to have a little extra space out there because there was someone out there to keep the peace. And if someone did line up taking a cheap shot or run at him, that we would go out there and take care of business. So that was the main reason of having an enforcer was self-policing accountability. The Philadelphia Flyers won two Stanley Cups in the 70s as the Broad Street Bullies. They were just tougher than the opponent. They literally bullied out their opponents and won championships with that attitude. Eventually, all the other teams started getting tough guys, and then it was kind of a wash. There was just, you know, it's a tough sport, right? There's grown men fighting for a rubber biscuit and, you know, using their bodies and strength and, and manipulation. And sometimes guys cross the line whether it was intentional or not, and, and things happen, guys get hurt. So you're protecting your players. The other element is energy creation where, you know, you're, you're down a couple goals, you're down a couple goals on the road, your team needs a spark, some enthusiasm, you get a big hit. Maybe you can't get the big hit, maybe you just go poke the goalie, you know, and, and generate some dismay by the other team and then they want to fight and then you generate some momentum and, and some energy through the act of fighting. And then the other one would be just like, you know, you're just sticking up for yourself. Like, you know, you're playing a physical brand of hockey. You make a big hit and someone comes after you. Again, they're protecting their teammates and then you go about your business and fight. So the, the role itself was established as an element of accountability, keeping the peace, self-policing. It's actually amazing the psychology behind it. Everyone wants to look at the obvious, so they're taking out fighting because of the concussion issues of like limiting brain trauma and head injuries, which I get, I'm all for safety. But there's something extremely powerful about the act of accountability and self-policing where how people's behaviors change when a guy like myself is or isn't in the lineup. And I can say that me being on the other side of the fence, when another tough guy is in or isn't in the lineup, my mindset changes. When playing back in the day, the Washington Capitals and Donald Brashear is not in the lineup, how I'm like, huh, I'm not going to have to fight the biggest, baddest dude in the league. So I'm just going to go around and act like a bigger jackass than I normally would be acting. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden I feel more confident because I don't have to answer to the biggest, toughest dude. So you can imagine the psychology in hockey guys actually somewhat behave in a, in a, in a different way versus if there's no toughness, no accountability at all. Like you see this in the game now, there's a lack of respect. 
There's more cheap shots than ever. There's more concussions than ever. I understand the guys are bigger, faster, stronger. That's for another day. But there's a lack of respect. And really what self-policing does breed, believe it or not, is some sort of respect. Respect between the tough guys themselves and the two opponents. So there's some honor in the role itself. Yeah. It reminds me when I was living in the North End Boston years ago and on the idea of policing, there was supposedly there was so much of the mob in the North End that it was one of the safest places for women to walk at night because the mob supposedly kept the neighborhood clean and orderly and looked out for the neighborhood, you know, regardless of whether you were part of the family or not. So you get into yoga in 2010, and this is like 10 years ago. You continue to do yoga over time during the last decade. You increasingly appreciate the physical benefits. You're starting to find a little bit of grace and ease in the mental or spiritual benefits. And the sense of embodiment, feeling embodied, you know, feeling connected. Yeah. So, you know, going back to 2010, when I first got reintroduced to it, it was the off seasons. I was still coaching. When I got out of playing, I was coaching. So my off seasons were similar to when I was playing, right? So I had more time. I could be more flexible with my schedule and and go to a yoga studio whenever I wanted and, and practice on my own time. So the summer times were beautiful because I basically had complete freedom to practice as much or as little as I wanted. And, and it was always a lot, you know, I really heavy practice in the off season. I get into the, the actual hockey season when I was coaching and I still brought my practice into the hockey season, but you know, I'm at the rink, you know, a good chunk of the day. A lot of times I did my workouts at the day. I would do some yoga at the rink, but it just really wasn't quite that same a ceremonial feel, if you will, as going to an ashram or a studio, right? There's something very, very sacred about doing that. So I went through the couple of years of just kind of figuring out what part of the yoga was I really drawn to. And, you know, it was, I was realizing it was more than just the physical practice, but I just liked that sanctuary type of feel. So it took me a couple of years to really find that flow. It was kind of on and off and, and I was consistent at times and less consistent in others. Then eventually, I started to re- kind of realize what was happening because I was kind of like at a point too where I was trying to renounce a lot of my past and, and almost like my identity as a hockey player. And I still feel like I'm working on that, like renouncing my identity as a hockey player. I'm not going to renounce hockey because it's a huge part of who I am and I, and I love it, but my identity as one. But part of that was like, oh, let's just like, you know, the physical body, you don't really need to really worry about the the physical body as much. I was really starting to get really into the mind, right? Psychology and and the spirit and almost to the point where I almost stopped like lifting weights and everything completely for a couple of years. Well, there's a couple of reasons. Like one is to prove a point to myself that I didn't need to be that big or that strong. It didn't mean anything in in the real world. But I started to realize that, wow, it's like, this physical practice, yes, there's this concentration component, this mindfulness component, this spiritual component, but it's almost I had to kind of go back to the physical body and, and realizing like this is like almost like a vehicle for me in a sense, or this is like refining my physical body and my temple. And I just started to really understand it. Everything kind of made sense. The whole philosophy, because I was reading scriptures and I still really go back to the, the philosophy, but realizing that like the physical body is almost like 
a bonus on top of all the other beautiful things that yoga has to offer. But I realized that kind of like I embodied the role of the enforcer where it was like, I had to like be this and live this and, and exude this. I feel the same thing with yoga because I feel like if you're just buying into the scriptures of philosophy and or just practicing the physical act of yoga, I, I feel like together, I felt like I needed to mindfully accept that I was embodying this practice where I was like living it. Like I, I, everything I was doing outside of the, the ashram was like part of my practice on the mat. You know what I mean? Where I realized that my physical body was almost like the, the conduit to living a better life uh, outwards. So, and the more and more I practice it, I feel that more and more it's like empowering, but it's not a competition. It's not like something I'm doing consciously to live the superficial world, right? It's not like I'm doing this to look better in a shirt or I'm doing this to be more flexible so I can post a video of myself on Instagram. You know what I mean? It's really to body the practice to be able to, to share the energy with others. You hit on something that made me think about the word embodied. And for those who have a regular yoga practice, you do get to have a better sense of your body, a better feel for your body, right? On the physical level. But you also, if you get into a regular yoga practice, and you get some exposure to just yogic thinking and philosophy and spirituality, or you're just open to the fact that there's more than, I think, as you mentioned, more than the meat suit that you exist in, you embody a different sense of self, a different person, and a different kind of purpose. And it sounds like you are still trying to figure out how to integrate and kind of recognize your prior life being an enforcer in the, in the NHL which sounds friggin' exhausting for a guy who's been only in a handful of bar fights. Not only is exhausting fighting for 27 seconds in, in O'Callaghan's pub, but it takes a long time to come down from a fight. And it's got to be as much energy to get worked up to do a fight, you know, especially if it's your job. And you had embodied a certain personality and character and purpose. And now when you say embodied, you know, just hearing you talk, it's more about a different version of Riley, a new version of Riley, you know, a different role for Riley. And I think for those who are interested in growing and changing, because life will change you. And if you don't change and move with life, the universe is going to squeeze you and, and put you in a place where you, you can choose to pay attention or not. And so it sounds like you've, you are and continue to very much continue to be on that path, not just from your yoga practice, and I want to point out that you're also, you know, recently certified yoga teacher. You now teach yoga classes. You are in the process of living that life and, and being that person. And on the note, we were talking before about the self-policing benefit of what fighting did for pro hockey, the accountability and creating energy. As someone who has a deep yoga practice and as someone who's a yoga teacher, how do you see the self-policing and the accountability and the idea of energy as someone who practices yoga or leads yoga classes or someone who advocates to others to consider yoga. Well, going back to the element of accountability, right? It's like whether you're on the ice or off the ice. I mean, what I've learned in my personal life is that you have to be accountable no matter what, right? You have to be accountable for your actions, your thinking, all the above, and they all have a ripple effect into your life. So accountability is everything. And it's like you said, the universe is going to squeeze you one way or another. So you may as well work with it and start being accountable before you have to go through all these hard times and suffering before you're going to land up being accountable anyways, right? So you may as well get ahead of it in accountability. 
So that's really my, how my philosophy shifted. It was just like, I guess I was always an accountable person, but just in a different dimension, right? It was like, okay, I'm accountable to the coach. I'll be on time. I'll be the hardest worker. I'm accountable to like these superficial laws within the locker room. But then there's this other piece of life, which is actually living, right? It's life, it's health and wellness and vitality, all these other things. So it's bringing over that accountability into the real world. It's like, it's being honest. It's like, you are what you think. It's like, you are what you eat. You become how you move, right? I mean, if you're constantly like this, you eventually affect your upper spine and your neck and everything. So it's just being aware of that, being honest with it, being honest with your life and getting back to accountability. It's just like, it's being empowered, because once you're accountable, you're now in control and now you have to make a decision and decisions. And But the empowerment piece, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, it's like I can, I can actually shape my life. I can actually shape my body. I can actually shape my thinking. I can actually visualize the future and you know, all these like super powerful things. But you have to be accountable. I, I think once you become the victim of anything and, and you play victim – Bad things are going to happen in life. There's always curveballs and all this other stuff, but it's always the mindset that can kind of get you through it. But if you play victim, there's no accountability, right? So you have no power. You have no power to change. And then, and then that cripples people. And then they just kind of like slowly die off. It's hard to make change. And the universe, like you said, will change you the way the universal laws land up working. So accountability is everything. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to do a lot of self-reflection. Um, you know, meditation is one of those things that, wow, is it powerful, yeah, but it's, it's so hard for people to wrap their head around because they, th- they think that they need to sit still and have zero thoughts going through their mind. But I think most people just stress themselves to bits and there's no self-reflection, but if you can just sit still for a while, you know, a couple minutes a day, start with that, just find, just try and find stillness. It's amazing how the universe has like ways of communicating energy and information to you. And I think it's, it goes back to the, the empowering energies that the universe has for us, whether intuition allows us to, to download these things or, or whatever it lands up being. But the sooner we can understand that we need to be accountable, the sooner we have more power to make change. Otherwise, we may as well surrender and just give up. Yeah, there's a knowledge and a wisdom in the universe, and we all have blind spots and this sense of not knowing ourselves and some people are able to figure out how to tap into what's out there as far as knowledge and intelligence and use that to kind of gain perspective on themselves and what they're, what they're not seeing. You know, I, I got to call out, you've got a podcast, Nasty Knuckles, which is mostly for the hockey community. And one of your episodes with Max Talbot, you guys get into a little bit about yoga and mindfulness and meditation and breath work. You know, from your seat and, and knowing the hockey community really well, knowing the pro athlete community well and knowing just a lot of guys in your network, are you seeing an evolution or a curiosity around some of this stuff amongst guys as a way to figure out to find peace and balance in their life? Because I just feel like guys are just not great at being aware of this stuff. And when, when they are aware, I don't think they know where to go to start dealing with this stuff other than you know maybe the pub or some other distraction that's trying to heal the moment versus trying to figure out what this stuff all means and how it can help. Yeah, there is a huge shift in consciousness. Uh, Let's talk specifically about hockey because that's the world that, you know, obviously was in and I'm still connected to. I know a lot of current players, but there's this shift 
as far as, I mean, the whole package we're talking about here, guys engaging in breath work. You know, I remember is it a year and a half ago, an article came out, ESPN, Duncan Keith, one of the premier defensemen, was at the Blackhawks at the time, talked about breath work being like one of the main things that he leans on as far as, you know, is a self-preservation and durability and length of career. And I know it's a huge piece for, for a lot of guys. It's just breath work alone. You talk about the old ages of drinking beers after games, you know, we call it recovery, right? Seems counterintuitive. But now, you know, not the guys that don't drink anymore at all. There's way less drinking. A lot of guys using cannabis, whether it's C- CBD or THC, to unwind, to relax, to sleep. So there's a, there's a mindfulness component around that. I mean, I know in major leagues, more than, than hockey, they actually have mindfulness coaches. I think it's you know, outside of the performance anxiety and the actual performance piece. Like these are human beings, right? So the guys have family issues, girlfriend, wife issues, you know, whatever it lands up being. So, you know, that, that mindfulness approach of like, you know, there's, there's going to be diversity. It's like, how can we deal with this in a little bit more of a calmer state of mind? So I know that for sure. I mean, it's a huge movement right now of guys optimizing brain, being more present, being more aware. Um, and they spend a ton of money in the off season for training. Strength and conditioning for these athletes is like, insane back in the day guys would go to training camp and get in shape or now it's like it's a full-time job your physical body is your money maker and guys are always looking for better ways to optimize and become better athletes so i mean naturally we're, we're almost going back in time from the simple fundamentals of you know meditation how important that is visualization right concentration it's like that wasn't taught in hockey it's like part of it but like it's not taught and, and then breathing, you know, I've never ever, ever even heard of like breathing technique or coach until even way after I retired. And then, you know, physical practice of yoga, you know, whether it's just during the season as far as recovery or in the off season and more of a strength type of yoga, whatever it lands up being, you can tailor all this to, to your season you are in. So to answer your question, I mean, it's evolved so much. I've been out of the game for 11 years now playing professional hockey. And I've seen such a shift in consciousness, you know, and I think we can go even one or two or three more dimensions here, especially when it's really coming down from the top, you know, the actual organizations themselves. Right now, if guys are using cannabis, they're on their own. That's not actually passed down through the organization. There's still a lot of pills being pushed in hockey. But that being said, there's a lot more awareness around this all and less addiction, less substance abuse, right? Healthier players, healthier minded players. At the end of the day, it's like... When guys retire or if there's a career-ending injury for whatever reason they have to retire, the goal is to have healthier-minded athletes on the back end of this, not just like in the here and now. I understand like corporate sports is corporate. It's about you know keeping the machine moving and finding replacement and all that stuff. But these are human beings. And when it's all said and done and the lights turn off, the game is over, it's like, do you want to have a system filled of former NHL guys that are addicted to booze and pills? And that's the culture that you've created? So the culture is shifting slowly but surely. And part of my job on the back end of this, you know, embodying yoga and using this as one of the vehicles is to change the culture of hockey. And I don't want to sound like a hypocrite because I was one of the biggest partiers and, you know, did a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have. Certainly didn't help my performance or my career. But if I can help save a life and help a guy 
not go down these dark paths like a lot of them guys do. That's part of my job. But, you know, go back to what you asked. There's a, a huge shift in consciousness. It's actually really nice to see. It's refreshing. You know, I went from guys, beers on the bus, right? Back in the day, beers on the bus after games to guys are infusing their own coconut oil or peanut butter with cannabis. So it's like, <laughs> as a coach, but I'd rather see my guys using cannabis after a game than booze. You know, you talk about dehydration of the body and brain. You talk about recovery, regeneration, the whole bit. It's like, that guy's going to play better tomorrow because he's actually using his brain and using some intelligence around what he's actually doing here. Yeah, I think one of the things I appreciate about yoga practice is if you do enough of it and keep doing it, especially as a guy over 40, your body cannot handle alcohol like it used to. It doesn't want it. No, no, it can't process. You crave more water to drink. You just you just want to eat better and feel better because mm-hmm. you know, crushing a dozen wings after a Bikram class is, is never going to happen twice. Right? You know? <laughs> right. And so it just forces you. And I think once you start getting in that mindset and living in that way, it, your body ultimately, you know, forces you to make a choice. And the last thing I want to do after playing hockey is having a couple beers. If anything, I want to stretch out the lower back and have some water. But so the good news is that more guys are getting into this. More guys are aware of what they need and the tools available to get them there. And yoga is a big part of that. Hey, Riley, I appreciate all the things you've shared. I appreciate you sharing your story, quite frankly, and all the cool things that you're doing. And I know a lot of guys who are going to listen to this are going to appreciate how open you are about this stuff. So thanks for doing what you do. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. It's right in my wheelhouse. So I appreciate you having me on. Right on, man. Well, I look forward to keeping in touch and we'll talk soon. So after listening to that conversation, does it feel like your life's becoming more work than it should be? Are you lacking a sense of fulfillment or purpose? Or as Riley would say, are you spiritually confused? To put it another way, does it feel like the universe has your sweater over your head and is pounding you in the face like an angry Donald Brashear? Well, maybe you need to ask yourself as you sit in the metaphysical sin bin, are you really on your path? And why haven't you started yoga yet? <laughs>